From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. The Ukrainian army has swept across areas in northeastern Ukraine. Russian troops appear to have been thin on the ground, unprepared and quick to retreat. The stunning collapse could be a turning point in the war. But it's also increasing pressure on Vladimir Putin at home, with previously loyal politicians and media figures criticising the leadership and decision-making in the Kremlin. Today, journalist Charles McFedrin on a humiliating Russian defeat in Ukraine. It's Thursday, September 15. Charles, maybe you could start by telling me where it is that you are right now. Right, I'm in uh, Kiev, Ukraine, the capital of uh, this country, and uh, on what is a fairly sort of crisp autumn day, the fog has already started to uh, shroud the city. So we've already seen the end of what's been a pretty eventful summer for this country. The mood at the moment in Ukraine is, uh, I would say, a mixture of elation because uh, the Ukrainian offensive in the Northeast seems to be going very, very well. But also, there's always sadness. People are losing loved ones, uh, even with the successes of the army. The fact is there's also a sense of determination uh, because uh, most Ukrainians, in fact, I'd say almost all Ukrainians, don't see really an alternative to this offensive and to the war in, in general after Bucha and Mariupol. But on the whole, certainly morale is a lot higher than uh, a week, a week and a half ago uh, when this offensive began. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the Ukrainian offensive in the northeast in a bit more detail, because as we speak, it appears that Russian troops have suffered a stunning collapse and have been forced to retreat Tell me about what it is that's happening on the ground. What we saw was, uh, I think, a successful info operation in advance that really played on uh, Vladimir Putin's ego. Basically, the Ukrainian forces built up the idea of an offensive in a very different part of the country, in the south of Ukraine, uh, which is the only provincial regional capital that Russia has been able to capture and hold since uh, this war began in February, Uh, and then they launched an offensive in a very different part of the country in the northeast. So the anecdotal reports we we have, and they are not 100% confirmed, is that Russian troops were very thin on the ground uh, in the northeast by the time that operation began. Transformation of the battlefield in eastern Ukraine. Ukrainian forces rolled through lines of Russian defenses and recaptured more than 3,000 square kilometers. It is a fast-moving counteroffensive by the Ukrainian military that analysts say shows that the tide of the war is shifting. So what we saw over the weekend was an absolute collapse of Russian positions in Kharkiv region, uh, troops effectively running for the border in some places, uh, huge amounts of equipment being captured. Here is Izium. That was the, the main center of command and control. But they did a classic military pincer movement. They- the Russian base in that region is Yum falling without much opposition, given the number of troops that were there. 
More territory has been recaptured by the Ukrainians, but of course... Kiev is claiming to have taken back almost all of the Kharkiv region. We're talking about uh, more than 50 uh, villages uh, in the east of the country, in the Kharkiv uh, region, places that had been under Russian occupation. Ukraine has seized back an immense amount of territory uh, from the Russians in just under a week. We're talking about just about the size of Cyprus, so a very large uh, megacity size of a worth of territory has come back to Ukraine as a result of this offensive. Uh, the Russians are, are confirming that. They're saying they're pulling out entirely of uh, the northeast of the country, that is Kharkiv region, and, and they're trying to stabilise their front lines uh, in the Donbass, that is Luhansk and Donetsk region. Ukraine has the initiative right now. It's so important. And you look at the Russian military there in almost full retreat. This is the most significant Russian withdrawal since they pulled out from Kiev in late March. Russia doesn't have a lot of room to manoeuvre those troops back. It seems they didn't have the reserves uh, that you'd, you'd need to have to kind of stem losses uh, when that offensive began. So real questions about... Uh, the sort of manpower that Russia has at its disposal at the moment and just how many casualties uh, the Russians have suffered. Uh, we've seen estimates uh, from the Ukrainians of over 52,000 dead, a significant percentage of the 200,000 who were originally involved in uh, this invasion in February killed and injured over the past few months. And that is really starting, I would say, to have an effect on Russian strategy on the battlefield and, and really prevent them from striking back. So it really has been a, a stunning uh, offensive, one of the most significant of the war so far. Mm. And Charles, up until this point in the war, it had been Russia making most of the advances, albeit in sometimes a slow and, and costly way. But now for the first time, it's Ukraine making these gains, managing to take back, as we said, thousands of, of square miles of territory in only a matter of days. And this is partly down to the strategy that they've employed and the lack of capacity of Russian troops, which came as a bit of a surprise, I think. But when you take a step back, what are the other things that have underpinned this and, and made this turnaround possible? What has changed for Ukraine? Let's put it this way. They would be in a very different position were it not for the aid that came over the summer. So what has changed for Ukraine is an increasing number of Western weapons, um, which enabled Ukrainian forces to soften up the Russians ahead of this offensive, really create logistical problems for them. You know, the first round of aid enabled them to fend off the Russians in Kiev and the north. And this round which came over the summer, has enabled them to really launch this offensive um, because their domestic arms capacity is basically nil right now. You know, they had a lot of their defence industry knocked out in the opening months of the Russian attack. Russia has targeted everything from, you know, power facilities to oil depots through to even sort of bread-baking factories. Uh, it, it's rather a miracle that things have held up as they have actually over the six months uh, of the invasion, that there haven't been dramatic shortages. So I think that the support of the West has been crucial, specifically the support that Ukraine has received from uh, its neighbours, such as Poland, has uh, enabled it to overcome some of the major problems it had 
and which have arisen throughout the war. Uh, I notice also that the uh, Australian Bushmasters have been deployed in the Kharkiv region and that uh, the Ukrainians are really thankful for those. So we've seen a really ongoing reaction that has enabled the Ukrainians to target Russian supply depots, Russian ammunition depots, so that by the time this offensive was launched, uh, the Russians had significant problems uh, with logistics, which has always been their Achilles heel. We saw the same problem in the north of the country when they tried to, to indeed take the capital in the late winter, which was that uh, there simply weren't the logistics in terms of resupplying the troops to maintain an offensive for any sort of period of time. And so this has been repeated, but in this case, it's sort of ended a Russian offensive and it has enabled, I think, the Ukrainians to push forward with the advantage they now have. We'll be back in a moment. The Every Moment Matters campaign provides accurate, evidence-based information and advice about alcohol, pregnancy and breastfeeding. It has been created by the Foundation for Alcohol Research and Education and endorsed and funded by the Australian Government. Alcohol use during pregnancy can lead to Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorder, or FASD, a lifelong disability. So make the moment you start trying the moment to stop drinking. Visit everymomentmatters.org.au to find out more. The city of London in Andrew O'Hagan's latest novel is crumbling. But don't mistake this for pessimism. Instead, the author insists it's a necessary process for a better future. Change doesn't just happen because it's time for a change. Change has to be forced. We live in the end not in countries that are settled places. They're just imagined communities. I'm Michael Williams, and on this week's Read This, I sit down with Andrew O'Hagan to discuss his latest Caledonian Road. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Charles, as this counter-offensive unfolds, as Ukraine retakes villages and large parts of the country back from Russian occupation, what are we hearing from Russia? Is there any concession through official channels that this is a significant defeat or are there signs that Russia might try and regroup and counterattack? There is a sense that this has been a defeat But they keep on saying that we're regrouping um, and that's why we're falling back. We're we're conceding another region, uh, Kharkiv, but we're determined to hold on to uh, the Donbass, Luhansk and Donetsk regions. The fact, though, is that this was, by all accounts, a disorderly retreat. So while the government in Moscow, the Kremlin, is conceding, it still maintains that the things are under control enough, whereas uh, the reports that we're seeing are far more dramatic, talking about total breakdown of communication, seeing an increasing amount of discontent on some of the Russian uh, telegram military channels, people wondering, well, is that really the plan or what is the plan? You know, entire uh, units of troops just hiding in the forest or dressing in civilian clothes. So it's unclear... Uh, to what extent 
the Russian spin on this defeat will be, but uh, severe trouble, I think, for the Russian forces, no matter how much the Kremlin spins it. Mm. Yeah, we have begun to see criticism within Russia of how the war has been conducted for the first time. Russian propaganda figures and, and even politicians seeming to turn on Russia's leadership. Can you tell me a bit about what they've been saying and, and the significance of that? Indeed, and it's really unclear uh, how far that criticism extends. What is certainly clear is that we've seen municipal deputies uh, in St. Petersburg and, and Moscow who've come out to criticise the handling of the war. Deputies from 18 municipal districts in Moscow and St. Petersburg have now signed a petition demanding Putin's resignation, calling his actions, quote, detrimental to Russia's and its citizens' future. In an even more unprecedented way, we've seen criticism of uh, what looks like a massive failure on, on state television. If you speak to some of the folks, uh, Russian officials, if you speak also to some of the people in Kremlin-controlled media, you do really get a sense that there is a very muted, very difficult feeling there right now as this Ukrainian counteroffensive rolls on with the Russians. A lot of this criticism uh, doesn't target the president personally. That's still really a no-go in, in Russia in, in many ways, particularly in the media. So it positions him as, you know, the Tsar who's been misled by his advisors uh, in launching this operation. But it certainly looks like we're seeing the first inklings of uh, a dissent in Russia against this war, uh, which has been massively costly and uh, so far has led to very mixed uh, results and has really degraded the capacities of the Russian army in any other theatres it might choose to fight in. Mm. And what about Vladimir Putin himself? What are we hearing from him? The day the Ukrainian offensive in the northeast of the country, the day where it really became clear that there'd been a breakthrough, uh, Vladimir Putin showed up in Moscow to uh, a celebration of the city's birthday. Uh, he unveiled a, a massive Ferris wheel and he didn't really address the issue. One also hears that he's left the capital to go to Sochi, uh, his favourite sort of southern retreat, uh, the beachfront city on the Black Sea. So publicly, he's had very little to say given the magnitude of these events. Mm -hmm. And so how damaging is all of this likely to be for Russia? Is what is happening now a fundamental failure for Russia and for Putin? Is it something that we, we might look back on as the beginning of the end of the war in Ukraine? I think it's too early to say that it's the beginning of the end of the war in Ukraine. We can already say that Vladimir Putin and his regime have been highly damaged by this war. At the start of the war, they wanted to take over Kiev in 72 hours, and they believed they could do so. They clearly could not. We saw Finland and Sweden apply for NATO entry, which was one of the big reasons why he said he launched that war, to prevent NATO from expanding. Well, now that ratification process is underway and nearly concluded, so he's getting more NATO on his borders. So that's a geostrategic loss. And now we're seeing a, a major military loss. Uh, we'll have to wait and see what happens on the southern front and whether there are significant Ukrainian gains. But it, it certainly is a very significant battle uh, within the context of the war between Russia and Ukraine. It's clearly too soon to know how this is going to play out. But if Russia does end up losing the war in Ukraine, the consequences for Putin 
could be catastrophic, couldn't they, given how personal this conflict has seemed for him at times and also how much of his reputation he's really staked on winning this. As much as the Kremlin might like to say that this is the problem of advisers, we've seen Vladimir Putin really put a lot of his reputation on the line here. So if the Russian army uh, were to suffer a a catastrophic defeat, uh, which is certainly not out of the question now, then the question would be uh, what would happen in Moscow? I think either President Putin would be under threat himself or the army leadership. So I see significant political turmoil in Russia as a result, and you certainly can't predict the outcome if uh, the army and the political leadership end up in some kind of confrontation over who's lost this war. Charles, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Ruby. Andrew O'Hagan's latest Caledonian Road explores one man's epic fall from grace. I'm Michael Williams, and on this week's Read This, I sit down with Andrew to discuss this and the state of modern Britain. All that and more, wherever you listen. Also in the news today... Protesters in the UK have been arrested by police while holding anti-monarchy signs during morning events for the Queen. Blank banners and white pieces of paper are now being used by protesters as a sign of their opposition to the monarchy. Yesterday, civil liberty groups in the UK raised concerns that police were using wide-ranging anti-protest laws to quash freedom of expression. And yesterday, railway workers in Sydney announced they'll turn off all payment machines for the Opal Card system as part of ongoing industrial action with the New South Wales government. If it goes ahead, the action would mean travellers ride for free from Wednesday next week. I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. See you tomorrow.